Amen. Okay, well, tonight we are continuing on our series through about dealing with the home and relationships. And the topic for this evening is going to be about purity. And because of that, I am actually going to be dismissing the kids. I want a little bit more freedom to talk about the things that we need to talk about. And I don't feel like I can keep the message G-rated, but it will be somewhere between PG to PG-13, hopefully, okay? So, so if you're watching online, this is your warning ahead of time before we get into it. But kids, you can go ahead and dismiss. Mrs. Uh, Hitz and Alice are both going to take care of you guys over in the cafeteria all the way up through sixth grade. <clears throat> So our text is going to be the book of Song of Solomon, if you want to go ahead and turn there. The book of Song of Solomon. And my goal tonight is not to go line by line and explain every figure of speech that is in the entire book of Song of Solomon. What my goal is, is to present some principles for relationships, whether it is uh, pre, before marriage or after marriage. I think this topic is an important topic, especially for teens who are not married, and a lot of times teens start to struggle with this, and the main reason is hormones start kicking in, right? Okay, So they, they struggle with issues dealing with purity, but this also applies to singles who aren't married, and to be honest, it, it is also important to people who are married today, who are already married. You, purity is not a, a category of theology that only applies to one specific group within our churches, okay? And for married people, marriage does not automatically mean that purity ceases to be an issue, right? Married people can struggle with lust over other people that are not their spouses. They can struggle with pornography just as much as single people can struggle with it. And so purity becomes an important issue for all of us. And I will wait, <laughs> okay? So... <laughs> There we go. Okay. <laughs> Especially in our culture, okay, since the 60s, we went through a dramatic cultural shift in the 60s, right? I wasn't there. Those of you who, are, who were, you can tell me about it later, right? But in the 60s, we went through the sexual revolution, okay? And the, and the philosophy was that love and sex should be free. It should be freely expressed, and, and there should be no limits on, on our, our physical relationships with other people. And so they cast off traditional norms about marriage and about sexuality. And that has ended up today where we don't even know that a, whether a man is a woman or a man or anymore, right? Okay, that's how things have gone so far in our culture because of the 1960s. But in the 90s, when I grew up, okay, in the 90s, there was a strong push in Christian churches to promote what they called a purity culture. I don't know if you've heard that term before, okay? But purity culture was big, especially in the 90s, because they saw the damage that the sexual revolution had done in culture and how it had impacted the lives of teenagers especially, how they, had, how they were, there was more teen pregnancies, there were, there were relationships that were constantly in and out of relationships, dating uh, really, dating today is more of an entertainment type of thing, right? And the, the, all of those things came about because of the sexual revolution. There was no commitment in relationships, and a lot of bad things were happening. So in the 90s, they started to push this purity movement, and the end goal of this, of this movement was great because it taught teens not to have sex before marriage, 
We call that abstinence, okay? Actually, in our public schools here in Oklahoma, I believe they taught, they, te they have taught, I don't know if they still do, okay? They had abstinence-type classes that they would teach. And a lot of people have reacted against purity culture in the 90s. We'll go into a little bit about that. But at its core, at its basis, was this idea wrong? Was it something that we should have rejected? No. God expects purity of his people. Ephesians 5, verse 3 says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not once be named among you as becometh saints. God's expectations, God's standards for believers is sexual purity. Okay, that's what he desires of his people, his children. And how many times can you give in? Does he say that, okay, it's acceptable if you give in just this little bit, but as long as you're not constantly doing this. No, that's not what he says in Ephesians, right? He says, let it not be how many times? Once, named among you, okay? Because that is not what God wants his people to be known for. It is antithetical to our profession that we are followers of Jesus Christ. And notice he calls us saints in this word, verse. What is a saint? Not Mother Teresa, okay? So, but what, what is a saint? A saint is a holy one. It is from the word for holy, a pure one, a set-apart one. As believers, we are to live lives that are pure, that are holy, that are set apart, that are like God. So the first thing I want to deal with tonight, we're going to establish before we get into Song of Solomon here, the meaning of sex, okay? What is it for? What does God think about this topic? And so sex and intimacy are good things, but they are designed to be only enjoyed in a covenant relationship, a commitment one to another in marriage. Let's turn to Hebrews 13, verse 4 real quick. Hebrews 13, verse number 4. This message is so important. As you guys are turning there, this message is so important, especially for our young people, because they're going to be taught something. This world is going to teach them something. And if we don't do it from the Bible, what are they going to end up with? They're going to end up with the wrong message. They're going to end up with wrong values related to sex and to intimacy. And it's going to lead to destruction in, the, in their relationships. But Hebrews 13, verse number 4, says, Marriage is honorable, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. So the first part, marriage is a good thing, okay? I know some of us, we, we, we look at bad marriages and we think, I don't want that because I, I, I don't want a bad marriage and, and I, everybody I see has bad marriages, so I don't want to get married, right? But God says marriage is honorable in all, but then he also says the bed undefiled. What does the bed mean? The sexual relationship, right? That's what he's talking about. And, and this is important right here because within marriage, sex is pure. Outside of marriage, sex is impure. So if we want to have purity, we enjoy sex, but we enjoy it within what bounds? Within the covenant of, relation, of our marriage relationships. And then the contrast here, he says, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Those who are violating these sexual standards that God has established, God is going to, to judge them. So marriage is honorable and sex is pure. It isn't dirty. It isn't even a necessary evil. There was a period of time in Christianity where sex was viewed as that taboo topic. It's actually still today, okay? You're probably surprised I'm preaching on this tonight, okay? So, but but it, it was viewed as this taboo topic, 
that we do not deal with, okay? We don't talk about it. In fact, I think it was Queen Victoria viewed it as her duty to the kingdom, okay? That was, that was how she worded it, okay? Because she owed it to come up with princes to propagate the rest of the European kingdom, okay? But that's, that's all it was in that Victorian mindset. But that is not God's mindset. And I think marriage and sex need to be understood as something special because of what they picture. Our physical relationship between a husband and wife, when a man leaves his father and his mother and he is joined to his wife, that is a picture of something greater, a spiritual reality. Remember my messages from Ephesians 5? The husband is told to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And then it quotes that verse in Genesis 2, verse 27, where it talks about a man leaving his father and his mother and being joined to his wife. So the marriage relationship speaks of a further, a greater relationship. Every marriage relationship represents in some way the relationship of God to his people. And we, it'll either reflect positively or it will reflect negatively on that relationship. And it's because of this that sex outside of marriage is wrong. It sends the wrong message. It sends the wrong picture about God's relationship to his people. Our world looks at it as just a biological function, like eating, okay? Eating, eating a sandwich. But if it is merely just an appetite, it has no significance, has no meaning. If this is the case, I would sleep with whoever I wanted to, whenever I wanted to, if it's just a biological function that we fulfill. Some people view it as romance. They conflate it with romance. They're not the same thing, okay? This sends the message that it's all about my own happiness and my own pleasure. It ha its, its purpose is to bring me ecstasy. But Christianity teaches that one of the primary purposes for the physical relationship is not to fulfill myself, but to fulfill my partner. Again, this goes back to um, Ephesians 5. Christ gave himself for the benefit of the church, for the church. He gave himself for her. In 1 Corinthians 7, the physical relationship is a service that I provide, that I render to meet the needs of my partner. So it's not all about me. But also some people say it's an expression of who I am. It's how I express myself. But then again, it's still all about you if that's the message that, it, that you are presenting in your relationships. So first of all, marriage is a covenant relationship. Covenants, what is a covenant? Anybody know? What's a covenant? A promise, okay, good answer. Any other answers? Contract, okay. So covenants are relationships established by a promise. They are a contract, though. They are an agreement, a binding agreement between two people. When a man and a woman come before the church in a wedding ceremony and they give their vows, what are they doing? They are entering into a covenant relationship. They are making a promise. When they say, I do, they are promising. They are committing to a covenant relationship. Okay? That's what weddings are all about. They're the celebration of a covenant promise. And it is that kind of relationship that sex should flourish in. And anything else demeans what God created it to be. And it demeans ultimately who God is outside of that marriage relationship. But it is also a picture of an inward reality, okay? 
Now, there are not a whole lot. Actually, there's only one person I will do this to. There, there's one person I will ever be naked in front of of my own free will, okay? So, and that is my wife. And when I am standing there naked, I am vulnerable. I am open. There is nothing hidden. I know, Kate, you're, you're like, wow, okay. So there is nothing hidden. She knows it all, right? I am in a vulnerable position. That type of position should not be entered into outside of marriage because I am basically saying I'm giving, I, the repre- what it represents is I'm giving myself completely to this person. Nothing is held back. But when you have sex outside of marriage, what you are saying is, I'm doing this with my body, but not with my life. So it's almost a lie. It's, te- it's a half-truth. You're saying, I'm going to give you this physical side of me, but I'm not willing to give you myself completely in a covenant relationship. I'm not going to make that covenant commitment to this relationship. And really, that lacks integrity. Okay, It lacks integrity. But in marriage, every time that a husband and wife come together, that is a celebration, really an anniversary of the commitment that they made one to another on their marriage days. On their marriage day. Sorry, uh, we don't have day-long celebrations here, okay? So Jewish culture, I think, what was it, seven days? Luke, do you know? Yeah, something like seven days marriage feast. Okay. I don't think I wanted to go through that because there's a lot of other things going on too, okay? So... But purity before and after marriage is essential to the true meaning of intimacy. This is why adultery is so wrong, because it breaks this marriage covenant, and it, and it destroys the true meaning of intimacy within the relationship. As I said earlier, purity culture placed an emphasis on purity, and they should have. That was a good thing. I do think in the 90s, they tended to also emphasize gimmicks, like sign this contract that you're going to remain pure, or wear this purity ring, or go to this dance and dance with your daddy in a, in a celebration of your purity type of thing. There's nothing wrong necessarily with those things, but they were just gimmicks. And a lot of times what it emphasized was abstinence instead of purity. Those two things are different, okay? Let me explain why, why they are different. Abstinence just means I am going to refrain from the physical relationship. It's all that it means. My heart can want, can desire, can try to find the loopholes and try to get around it as much as possible, and I can still be abstinent. But purity is a matter of the heart. It's a heart that wants to do what God wants and, and has pure motives and looks at this physical relationship the way that God would look at this relationship. So in the years that followed, after the purity moment, movement, there was a decrease in teen pregnancies. Can't prove that it was because of that, but there was, okay? But later in the 2000s, people began to react against it, saying that it was motivated by fear, that it was too restrictive, that it put the blame on the girls, and that it was not inclusive of LGBTQ rights, okay? These are the accusations. Some of those were right. Some of them were not, okay? The world doesn't understand a biblical perspective, so they're not going to understand why we do what we do. But the purity culture's biggest downfall was that it taught teens passively. They didn't directly say this, but it taught teens that abstinence is the same thing as purity, and it's not. So there has to be, we have to understand that there is a difference between these two things, okay? Purity is a matter of the heart. Purity is a heart that is clean of sinful sexual desires. It's not wrong to feel desire for somebody, okay? But if the desire wants to be fulfilled before marriage in ways that do not glorify God, it is impure. P- 
people who, who say things that are suggestive to someone. That isn't their wife, okay? I can flirt with my wife, okay? I'm just going to make that clear. So, okay, but if you say something suggestive to somebody that isn't your wife, that is impure. People who send suggestive photos, that is impurity. Giving in to other forms of sexual intimacy other than the actual act itself is still impurity. Impurity is a matter of the heart. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Are you devoted to pleasing God in how you live sexually? Okay? That's really what it comes down to. God has made clear exactly what his expectations are. Right? No sex outside of marriage and no sex with anybody after you're married other than your spouse. Those are God's standards. It's clear, plain, black, and white. And God's standard is that we don't violate those things. So are you devoted? Is your heart passionate about pleasing God and doing what he wants in these areas. <clears throat> I think the, the arguments against the purity culture, first of all, the one that said that it was motivated by fear, was probably a little bit true. But fear is not necessarily a bad thing. But I think if we're going to have a biblical understanding of purity, we have to have a biblical framework and a biblical motivation for why we should live pure lives. So let's go ahead and turn to Song of Solomon, our main, main text for the evening. Song of Solomon. If you can't find it because you've never read it or never uh, heard it preached from in your entire life, which is most of you, okay? <laughs> so it is after Ecclesiastes and before Isaiah, okay? So turn to Isaiah, flip back a couple pages. <laughs> Book of Song of Solomon. <clears throat> okay, Song of Solomon is really a poetic narrative intended to show us the joys of biblical love between a man and a woman, okay? A lot, like I said, back in the Victorian area, people thought that sex was a necessary evil. So you know what they did? They took this book and they turned it into an allegory. They made it into a picture. You guys know what an allegory is? You've re ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Okay? It's not real. Basically, everything symbolizes something else, right? That's an allegory. Well, people habitually went to Song of Solomon and they said, no, this can't be what it says it is. This is just an allegory. It's a picture of God and his people, their relationship. Every marriage is a picture of God and his, and his relationship with his people. So that statement is true, but it is not the purpose of the book of Song of Solomon. There are problems if you take that view. Because there are some things in this book that cannot translate to our relationship with God. I'm not going to go into detail, but just read later on verse no, chapter number 4. Okay, And as you go through there, imagine what he is talking about. There is no correlation to our relationship with God in chapter 4. Not one-on-one not -on -one direct correlation. Okay, So this, this book is intended to be... A song about love, about the physical relationship between a man and a woman. In fact, uh, Jewish men were not allowed to read this book until they were a certain age. Okay? I believe because our culture is forcing its philosophy on our children these days, and they're going to have to make decisions related to this issue that we can't hide from and ignore and pretend like, okay, you got to be 40 before you read the book of Song of Solomon. Okay? So we need to have a biblical understanding of our relationships our physical relationships. Also, on top of that, you not only can you not take all of the things and make them an allegory, 
but also the structure and the style of the book of Song of Solomon is exactly the same as Near Eastern love poetry in other cultures. It's written exactly the same way. You can look at secular literature in the same time period and look at for the, their love literature and it parallels what you see in the book of Song of Solomon. So the narrative traces a man and a woman who meet each other in chapter number one, okay? That is kind of their first date. And then as you get towards chapter three, they are progressing in their relationship. They are advancing in their relationship. So they're getting to know each other more and they're anticipating marriage. That's gonna be a key concept here. They're anticipating marriage. But in chapter number three, that's when you actually see the wedding. There is a wedding between the two of them. Chapter number four goes into the honeymoon stage. And then you've got their life after their marriage. In part of the climax of the story, there is a conflict between the husband and the wife where he comes home one day and knocks on the door to be let in, but she's taking a bath and they don't have concrete floors back then. They have what kind of floors? Dirt floors, okay? And she doesn't want to get herself dressed again, walk across the floor and let him in. Basically, they have a conflict because it's inconvenient for her to let her husband in the door, okay? So what does he do? He goes and he finds lodging elsewhere, but then she awakens to her senses and she goes and she searches for him until she finds them. Their relationship is resolved and there is another, there is another reiteration of the honeymoon scene at the very end of the book when their relationship is made right again. And that's kind of the progress throughout the book. But there's one verse that is repeated three different times in the book of Song of Solomon. I want you to take a look there. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, and verse number 7. Song of Solomon 2, verse number 7. It says, I charge you, O daughters, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love, till he pleases. Let's look at 3, verse number 5. Chapter 3, verse number 5. It says, I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up nor awake my love till he pleases. And then one other passage, Song of Solomon 8, verse number 4. This is towards the end of the chapter, okay? Song of Solomon 8, verse number 4. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that ye stir not up nor awaken my love until he pleases, okay? Whenever something's repeated in the Bible, why is it repeated in the Bible? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. If something is repeated in the Bible multiple times in the same chapter, in the same book, the author is trying to emphasize a truth. And this is one of the central truths to the book of Song of Solomon here. It says, that ye stir not up nor awaken my love till he pleases. Now I need to explain something here, okay? In Greek, in Greek and Hebrew, really any language other than English, pretty much, okay? When you have a verb, it has to agree in gender and number with what it is referring to. I know this is technical, but hold on here, okay? That verb, pleases, is feminine. It is not masculine, okay? The King James translates it, till he pleases, but literally it would say, till she pleases. So we've got to ask ourselves, who is the she? This is the woman talking, okay? She's talking to the virgins, to her friends who are not married, 
who do not have their beloved yet. Okay, that's who she's talking to. So who is, who is the she here? The she, the only feminine antecedent for this verb is the word love. Literally, it is saying this, do not stir up nor awaken love until it or she, the love, pleases. Okay, the truth is this, okay? There is a time for love and there is a time not for love, okay? So there's a time to awaken passion and there is a time that we should not awaken passion. And what she is challenging as she's telling her love story to these other women who are not married, who are not ready for marriage, is do not stir up love until it is the right time for love. Physical passion is like a fire, okay? We talked about wet blankets this morning. Physical passion is a, wet, is a fire that you need a wet blanket for, okay? So it is a fire that burns within you and it is hard to ignore and hard to deny. But giving in to the physical relationship prior to the time that God says we should only makes it even harder to live a pure life before God. What happens when you take a match and you drop it on some kindling? Anybody? It goes up real fast, okay? Boom, it becomes bigger than it was originally, okay? She is challenging them not to awaken, not to light, not to kindle that fire until it is the right time to do so. God desires something good that is good for his people. The physical relationship between a man and a woman is good and it is something God wants for his people. In fact, in Song of Solomon, there is actually only one place where most scholars think that God actually speaks. Let's turn to Song of Solomon chapter 5, verse number 1. This is the only place that people are agreed God actually speaks here. If you don't believe this is God, then God's not mentioned in the rest of the book. Okay, that's all I got to say. Okay, Song of Solomon chapter 5, verse number 1. Okay, so it starts off with the, the man speaking. I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. And all these things are symbolic of the physical relationship. But then there is a statement here. Eat, O friends. Drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. This is the narrator jumping in, possibly God speaking and giving his approval for everything that has just happened. Again, remember, chapter four was what? The honeymoon scene. And this voice, this, this third party, this omniscient point of view in the poetry is saying, eat, drink, not just drink, drink abundantly, enjoy, delight in what I have given you. And then he calls them friends, and he calls them beloved, okay? God's desire is, the, is for our good. God wants us to enjoy our physical relationship with our spouse as husband and wife. But he knows that sex outside of marriage will never be able to bring full joy because it is not fulfilling its true purpose within a covenant, committed relationship. There is always something that is held back outside of marriage. There is something wrong. There is something skewed. There is something slanted about sex outside of marriage. So the main charge that he gives within Song of Solomon is do not awaken love until it is the right time to give in. Now what is the right time? When is, when is the time for love? 
time for marriage, right? Okay. Uh, honestly, if you're 13 or 11, now's not the time, okay? So it just isn't the time. If you can't even consider getting marriage, it's not the right time, okay? So don't awaken it and make it a fire that is flaming that you can't put out, that you're going to struggle with before that. So don't awaken love before it is time, before it pleases, before it is its pleasure to start, okay? Now, the second thing I want to look at here is another analogy that is used within the book of Song of Solomon. So don't just awaken love because it's like a fire that will continue burning. But there is a talk about love being a garden, okay, within Song of Solomon. There's a lot of what we call pastoral language, talking about vineyards and gardens and things like that. So oftentimes when we talk about purity, there is an emphasis on the rules, and I think rules are good because they do help us, per, they maintain purity. They are boundaries. They are walls. But there is a downside to walls, right? If I build a wall around a fence, I can dig underneath it. My dog is very good at this, okay? So I can dig underneath the wall. I can jump over the wall. Or if I'm Levi, take a sledgehammer and knock the wall down, okay? No, so. But I can destroy walls. If I really want to, I am going to find a way to break out of those walls. This is one of, the, one of the dangers of relying only on standards and dating practices to keep our kids pure before God. Again, purity is not just the actions. It's the heart. Okay? The standards and the practices, they have a benefit. They have a place. But kids who want the wrong thing will find a way around that wall. They will tunnel under, they will jump over, they will break down the wall even to get what they want to get. And Song of Solomon gives us reasons for why we should not awaken love before it's time. The first reason that he gives us to remain pure is to preserve our garden for the time in which we can purely enjoy it with our spouse. Song of Solomon 2, verse number 15. <clears throat> Actually, let's read 14 and 15 together. Song of Solomon 2, verse 14 and 15. O my dove, thou art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs. Let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice. For sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. Then it says, Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines. For our vines have tender grapes. The vines, the vineyard, the garden that they are growing is a picture, a symbol of their, their relationship between the two of them, their love between a man and between a woman. Now in chapter two, remember, this is before they are married, okay? There are things that destroy our relationships even before we get married. I think these things exist after marriage too, and we'll talk about that as well. But the, she, he, they are concerned that their relationship not be spoiled. It says, take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines. Now, what do, what do foxes do? Foxes want to eat, okay? The gray goose is dead, right? The, the fox has got the gray goose over his shoulder running away, okay? So, gray, goose, foxes want to break in and they want to attack and they want to eat what's in that garden. They do damage. There are consequences to the foxes getting into the vineyard, right? And so there are things, little foxes, that spoil our vines of our vineyard. They do damage, 
and they do have consequences in our physical relationship in the future. Uh, Verse number 12, it's talking about the blooming of their garden here. We've got verse 12 says, the flowers appear on the earth and the time of the singing of birds has come and the voice of the turtle, that's a turtle dove, is heard in our land. The fig putteth forth her green figs and the vines with tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Their relationship is blossoming. It is growing. It is becoming a beautiful thing. When you think of flowers, you think of beautiful things, right? Things that you enjoy looking at, and if you don't have allergies, smelling, okay? <laughs> so, but they are good things, and so they are concerned that these foxes are going to come in and going to damage that relationship. The romance is alive, So foxes symbolize the things that would come in and destroy our relationships. Now I think taking care of and tending your vineyard means to protect it from the little foxes that can damage your future relationship with your wife. There are sins that you can commit, things that you can do, that you can give into before marriage that will have an impact on your relationships. One of them is habitually lusting after women, okay? What does that train you to do? If you have a wandering eye constantly, even if after you get married and you tell yourself, this is wrong, I'm not going to do this, it ain't going to be easy to stop because you've got years of habit built up and it isn't going to be good for your relationship, is it? It is damaging to the relationship. It's a sin that you can indulge in beforehand. Romantic fantasies, okay? This is probably one of the dangers of most romance novels that are out there, okay? I'm not even sure how I feel about Christian romance novels at this point. I don't know. Okay, so you guys can tell me later. Okay, so, but letting your mind give in to visions of somebody else scars your mind. It puts images that are there that are hard to get rid of later on. And that ties into pornography. Okay? Pornography trains you to compare your spouse with somebody else. And to be honest with something that doesn't even really exist. It's all fake. It's all make-believe. It's not real. It's not how real life is. It's not how real relationships are. It is junk, okay? That's all I'm going to say. It is trash. And it trains you to think wrongly about your spouse, to have unreal expectations. And guess what? She won't match up, and it will hurt your relationship with your spouse. C.S. Lewis uses an illustration. He asks us to imagine a planet where people pay money to, to uh, watch somebody else eat a mutton chop, okay? Or where people ogle magazine pictures of food. I could see some of us doing this, okay? Actually, Food Network. Okay, anyway, so, so <laughs> we, we pay money for this too, right? But imagine a planet, and if we landed on such a planet, we would think that the appetites of these people are totally messed up, right? That they're paying to watch somebody eat a steak, you know? And they're, they're looking at magazines of food, but they, they, they're, they're, they're just deranged. That's what it comes down to. Their appetites are messed up. They're skewed. Yet that's just how our modern world approaches sex and the physical relationship. It has taken something that is beautiful and, it, and has its place, and it has corrupted it, okay? Last one on here that I'm going to mention is um, one that I thought about not saying. I'm just going to say the word. I'm not going to go into detail about what it is, and that is masturbation, which often goes with pornography. We don't deal with it from the pulpit, but it's a problem, right? They oftentimes go together, 
But what, what does that train you to do? To think. Okay? Yeah. Ask your parents. Okay? So if, you, if, they, if, you're, if you're ready to know, I'm not going to define it. But what does that train you to think? And, and the philosophy that it gives you. Self-gratification is all that matters. All that is important before marriage. And all of these philosophies, the lust, the comparison, the self-gratification, they all train you to think about love and to think about relationships in the wrong way. They are the little foxes that can come in and that can damage. There are other little foxes, jealousy. Okay, some non-sexual little foxes that, that can come in. Jealousy is one. Comparing, but impurity is probably one of the biggest ones in our culture today. The goal in tending our vineyard and in protecting it is to be able to present it to your lover in full bloom when it is time, to enjoy it. Purity can be restored. Gardens can be regrown, can they not? But sin always has consequences. And giving in to these sins oftentimes leads to struggles later on. So the first reason to present, to protect our garden is to be able to give it to our spouse in full bloom, to keep these little foxes from destroying it. The second reason we should remain pure is because of our future relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay? You might be thinking, why wait? God doesn't seem to be bringing anybody into my life, so what's the point of preserving anybody, anything for anybody because I'm not getting married, right? There is a greater future lying ahead for us, and the Christian should live his life in view of that future. Consider two reasons why, okay? First of all, God sometimes surprises us with things that we weren't expecting. I'm always going to use Jim and Tanya for this. Tanya was single for how many years? I don't know. I'm not going to say, okay? But she probably came to points in her life where she'd given up hope, right? But God did something surprising. God brought somebody into her life when she was not expecting it. And you don't know what the future holds. Nancy Lee DeMoss, or Nancy DeMoss Wolgamuth, as she is called now. I'm so used to calling her Nancy Lee DeMoss because she was single until she was 50-something, right? Okay? My whole life she was single until recently. And then she gets married, and now she is happily married, right? And they, they work together in the ministry. But God did something amazing that she had given up hope on. So why should you wait? Why should you be pure? Because you don't know what the future holds. Okay? God can turn things around and do something unexpected. But secondly, because we have a greater love to look forward to with Jesus Christ. Our lives are God's vineyard. My relationship with my wife is my, my vineyard, okay? And I'm to protect that. I'm to nurture that. But my life, my relationship with God is his vineyard. And I may not be able to present my body to somebody else in marriage, but one day I will present my whole life to Jesus Christ. And God is at work in our lives, and we should desire to give him a vineyard that produces good fruit. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter number 5. Isaiah chapter number 5. <clears throat> In Isaiah 5, God says that he planted Israel as his vineyard. Okay, let's start in verse number 1. We'll read through verse 7. Run ye to and fro through the street. No, sorry, I'm in Jeremiah. Isaiah. Okay, so Isaiah chapter number 5. I spent so much time in Jeremiah, my Bible actually 
flips there automatically. So, Isaiah 5, verse 1. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. Interesting. This is a song of the vineyard. Now, here's the question. Who's singing? Now will I sing a song to my well-beloved, a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. He fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press there. And he, he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. So let's back up just to start here. This, this beloved is building a vineyard and he fences it. He protects the vineyard, okay? He's protecting it from the, from the foxes in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and he gathered the stones thereof. He took out all those rocks that were in the way of things growing and he planted the choicest vines and he built a tower. The tower is a symbol of defense. And then he made a wine press therein. And his expectation after all this effort to protect his vineyard is that it would bring forth good fruit, good grapes. But what kind of grapes did it bring forth? Wild grapes, sour grapes. It says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. Okay, that's interesting. So who's talking? This is God, right? So who's singing? This is God talking about, singing about us, his vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I had not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and broken down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned, nor digged. But there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. He looked for judgment, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry. This is God's heart towards his relationship. He, God desires for us to be found a pure vineyard, bringing forth good fruit. And part of that is in our relationships one with another, between men and women, boys and girls, that we would be pure. In our culture today, they say that nearly 90% of young people are impure before they are getting married. And it would be easy to assume, well, I've blown it so much for that, okay? But like a garden, as I said before, purity can be regrown. It is something that can be gained. Purity is a matter of the heart and as such can be restored. There is still hope. So let's regrow our garden if it's been, broke, if it's been trampled under, underfoot. Let's build those walls. Let's protect our gardens. So many people struggle in this area and think God doesn't want you to find love. That's not the heart of God. He is not a killjoy, okay? We need to recognize that God knows our desires. Psalm 38 verse 9 and 10 says, Lord, all my desire is before thee, and my groaning is not hid from thee. My heart panteth, my strength faileth. As for the light of mine eyes, it also is, is gone from me. And then as we saw in Song of Solomon 5, verse 1, God delights in the true fulfillment of those desires for us. But the question I want to ask us tonight is this, okay? Especially you teens, okay? Single people, Haley, and where's Nathan? Okay, anyways, okay, so the single people, but the adults as well, okay? 
The adults as well, this is an important question. Can you trust God with your desires? Psalm 38, verse 15, For in thee, O Lord, do I hope. Thou wilt hear, O Lord my God. We need to trust God with our relationships with our spouses, with our relationships with other people of the opposite gender, and we need to seek to be pleasing him in our gardens. On the book cart out there, I have two books that uh, I read. Well, actually, I got more than two books, okay? I got, I got four books I'm going to recommend to you, okay? One of them is Passion and Purity by Elizabeth Elliot. I really think this is an important book for teenagers to read especially. There's also one that we put out there by Nancy Lee DeMoss called Lies Young Women Believe. It deals with more than just purity, but it, a lot of it does deal with this issue, okay? For the men, if you're struggling with purity, especially married men, there are two books, Living Purely in an Impure World by Jim Binney, okay? Jim Binney is a Christian counselor. Actually, how many of you guys have ever watched Bewitched, okay? You remember the uh, crazy lady who was her mother? I don't even remember her name. Endora, okay, Endora, okay. Endora got saved, and she left all of her money to Jim Binney to start a counseling ministry for preachers, okay? And so Jim Binney wrote this book, Living Purely in an Impure World, to help us navigate. We're, we're surrounded constantly by a culture that says sex, 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 constantly. You walk through the mall. That's the number one thing they're going to promote in the mall. You watch commercials. That's how they sell things. And we're constantly bombarded by a philosophy that wants to undermine our values and God's expectations for our lives. So he wrote this book, Living Purely in an Impure World. And then another one is uh, the Sans Samson Syndrome. Okay, when you think of Samson, who, what do you think of? A man who constantly was going to a bunch of whores. Okay, that's, that's, what, that's what you think about Samson. Okay, because he struggled with purity in his life. And the author of the book tries to draw a connection between strong men and impurity. Because men who think they are strong generally are also the ones who tend to struggle in these areas. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll have a time of invitation tonight. Really, this is what I'm calling for. This is what I'm asking. I am asking single, teens, adults, let's be committed to honoring and glorifying God in our physical relationships with people of the other spouse. Let's pursue purity in our relationships. Go and take a seat. I surrender all. This is an area we need to surrender to the Lord. Now, I made a mistake this morning. 
Okay, when Marcy came forward to join the church, I missed something. Any of you could pick up on that? Okay, so 